0: Stories That Matter Studios, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This three-time Walkley Award winner is the anchor of one of the ABC's flagship television programs, 7.30, presenting the current affairs show for a decade. And in this episode of The Journal Project, she still proudly introduces herself as a journalist first. Lee Sales has just won the 2019 Walkley Book Award for Any Ordinary Day, with its intertwined stories of people enduring unimaginable tragedy, selling more than 100,000 copies in Australia. As the Walkley judges said, in a writing world steeped in memoir, Lee Sales turned her personal story into journalism.
1: Lee Sales, I am a journalist at the ABC.
0: Lee Sales, thank you so much for joining. Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. I'm very happy to be here. Here we are in the green room at Ultimo, ABC, HQ. I'm sort of downstairs, it's a bit of a bunker down here. I don't think of, I've been
1: here before. It is a bit of a bunker. So this is where <laughs> this is the room where that's my wardrobe over there. Where I keep my work clothes and makeup's just outside, and then the 7:30 studio is just in there. So from about 10 past seven every night, I'm sort of down here. It's nice and quiet. You don't run into anybody, so you can get your head in the right space.
0: Lee I uh, firstly should congratulate you of course we are here in the week the 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 night of nights tonight for journos (laughs) you're a Walkley nominated journo again is this the fourth nom
1: or you've had Uh, three two Walkley awards I've got I've got two Walkley awards I don't know how many nominations sorry well that's wonderful congratulations (laughs) thank you not at (laughs) all and I don't think us journos give ourselves enough credit for when we're recognized by our peers it is a really nice thing um, and it's I think, too, the thing that always gets me is you look at everyone else's work and it just makes you feel like, oh, God, there's so much good, amazing work out there that people do.
0: And I've put a couple of prompts here for our interview, Lee. I've got your beautiful book and the headphones because I think it's a nice intersection perhaps of your career so far. We've got yeah. any ordinary day. Yeah, Was this something that you imagine could get the success? It sounds, when I was reading it, there was just a real candour, I think, there that it sounded like a very personal
1: book. I thought, you know, it's funny you ask it in that way because when I started working on it, I thought not only might nobody want to buy this book, nobody (laughs) might want to publish it because (laughs) I thought people might think that is so black and so dark to be focused on this because the focus of it is the way that, you know, what we see in the news every night, that life can suddenly blindside people and then the life you were living can be turned completely upside down. And I think we often see those kind of stories on the news and feel fearful of them and and scared that that might happen to us. And so I was scared to sort of write the book and immerse in that. And so I could understand why people maybe would think, oh, well, I don't want to read it. But actually it's been the opposite because it's such a common universal human experience and people don't like talking about it. So the fact that I did this deep dive into it, people I think found really useful because it hadn't been very talked about. And, you know, without exaggerating, literally at the moment, the book's been out for a bit over a year, not a day would pass that I would not get a letter, some contact on social media or somebody in the street come up to me and say, that book has helped me.
0: Having read it, finishing it again in the the plane on the way down, like I was saying to you Lee beforehand, I just feel like I've thrown all my questions out the window. (laughs) I was going in here to talk about your career and and I still will do that. But I think it's a very interesting, yeah, that intersection between journalism and philosophy almost. I just wonder, (laughs) is that part of the reason you took this path is it almost to work out why we're
1: here in a journalistic sense I think it was partly to I think because of years of being a journalist just the weight of the pain of life I think was weighing really heavily on me and now you know this is the next year will be my 10th year of hosting 730 (gasps) and congratulations thank you when you're a general news reporter which I was for the whole rest of my career Sometimes you do stories where great things have happened to people. Sometimes you do sort of neutral, emotionally neutral stories. Sometimes you do really sad stories. A show like 7.30 that you're anchoring every night, while you're not in the field necessarily exposed to those things, every single night there will be somebody on your show who's going through the worst moment of their life. And also I often interview people who've been in high-profile disasters or had high-profile awful things happen to them. And so I'm exposed to that a lot. And so to me, it felt like the weight of this is becoming really crippling when you combine it with the weight of just what goes on in every person's individual personal life. And so I felt like I needed to sort of understand like, if this is how life is, how do you live life? And how do you come to terms with the fact that your life can suddenly change in any instant? So that was what set me off on it
0: and I think I want to get some tips from you I've got some I see your meticulous handwritten notes here (laughs) getting ready for your interviews this afternoon I think you must have cracked the code on how to get 30 hours in a 24 hour day because (laughs) I'm just wondering how you did the book on top of on top of your wonderful work at 7.30 and is it just eking out these little moments in the day it is
1: um, and it did take four years from start of idea to Mm -hmm. finish of idea so yeah and I didn't I never signed a deal until the first draft was done because I didn't want the pressure I just wanted to be able to do it for myself so it was actually Annabelle Crab actually was the one who tipped me into doing it because we were shooting something one day this would have been in 2015 um, maybe 2016 and she said to me between takes when the crew would be moving the lighting she'd pull out a laptop she'd be tapping away on something she's working on a quarterly essay or something and I said to her what are you doing she said I'm running my quarterly essay <laughs> and I said I just I don't know how you're doing that like I remember when I was writing Detainee 002 which was my first book I took like six months off work and that was all I could do I'd get up in the morning I'd start writing I'd still be in my PJs at 10pm at night still writing and that was all I could focus on and she said oh god get over yourself um she said do you ever want to write another book again and I said yeah I really do and she said well how do you think you're going to do it you've got a big job you've got two small children this is how you'll be doing it in 15 minute chunks grabbing whatever bit of time you can and it was quite almost sort of liberating and I went home and thought well I guess it's just a question of how much do I want to do it like would I rather be at 9 p.m binge watching 30 Rock or would I rather do 15 minutes of writing and so I just started sort of beavering away to see what would come out and after sort of a couple of years I thought oh my god this is actually going to turn into a book so and you were interviewing people along the way yeah so mm. I started with um oh god I can't even remember now who was the first interview for the for the book of the collection of people I interviewed mm. but I actually started with I was just doing psychological research looking at psychology and philosophy and you mentioned and your friend who helps you with the yeah the little computer program to keep it all exactly organized. Kathy <laughs> who's <laughs> a research librarian set me up with this little program to help me keep track of all these academic articles because I didn't really know what I was looking for because it's such a broad unfocused question and so I just was reading about Philosophy and breast cancer, just tons of stuff to see if I could find a focus. And then once I felt like I had a clearer sense of the question I was trying to answer, then I started thinking through either stories I'd covered or stories I'd seen in the news that had particularly rattled me and then went from there. And so then I started interviewing. Who could give you those insights? Yeah, that's right. So I was looking Um, for people. I wanted a mix of people. I wanted people who'd had a recent tragedy and then I wanted people that had had a really bad tragedy decades earlier because I wanted to see over the past... Of time, how it affected things. So I think also when you're a young journalist and you're first reporting those stories make a big impact on you because it's your first exposure to things and so the Threadbow landslide was very present in my mind and Stuart Diver and the Port Arthur Massacre and those big stories of the years when I was just starting out in journalism really had stuck in my head so I went to those people. And
0: I remember them as well and it was how you mentioned the photos and I remember the photo of Stuart Diver being brought out with, you know, the angelic kind of look on his face. Um, It it just, it is good to to look back And, and I suppose reflecting now a year since writing it what do you what do you feel now are you any closer to to figuring this all
1: out well (laughs) i feel firstly i feel so happy for Stuart and walter mickack and all of the people james scott all of the people who spoke to me for my book because they all did it it required a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability and a lot of trust of me to talk about such intimate stuff that they hadn't in a lot of cases really talked about before and i feel so happy for them that I put them through that and that it is a book that has helped people because that is what they that's why all of them did it. So I feel so grateful that I didn't waste their time, and that that it really has been helpful for me. Bizarrely enough, it was almost like therapy. And so now, when I see stories on the news that previously would have really upset me, like say somebody who um, we had a story on seven thirty this year, a lovely bloke who was a ferry master and he got some maybe meningococcal or something like that, and he lost all of his limbs. Mm. And I was watching him. He was a very positive guy, and he was sort of trying to adapt and figure it all out. And he was it was the story was about his insurance claim, and just watching it having done the research I've done I felt like that is absolutely devastating what a horrendous thing to happen to them and they are that family is going to adapt like this in if we went go back to them in five years or ten years they're going to be coping quite well and the thing that I find that so much more hopeful whereas previously before I did all this research I would have watched that I would have gone home from work cried my eyes out thought about it um, and felt like that person's life is over, whereas now I know that that person's life is not over.
0: Was it such a relief to realise that these events didn't destroy people, horrendous as they were?
1: Yeah, and it's funny to sort of realise how you just have this sort of very, or I did, very simplistic view of life being all good or then something something happens to you and then it's all bad. Like, life is good and bad simultaneously all the time. I remember Dylan Alcott at the Logie Awards Mm -hmm. this year gave this fantastic speech where he was talking about how when he was a kid the only people he saw on tv who looked like him in a wheelchair were cautionary tales at the end of a car safety ad and so the message was if you're like me your life's over and he said how liberating it's been that he now is able to be on tv and show that that's not that's not true that's not right like you can be in a wheelchair and have an awesome life and be living you know to your fullest possible potential and so those kind of messages for me I guess this that life's a mixture of being very painful but also still having moments of joy is how I feel like I've come out of it and I I think I've become a bit better as well at not being worried about what might lie ahead and just being it sounds so cliché, but just being more in the moment and enjoying the moment more.
0: Well, I think there's a preventative aspect that really came home for me as well, and possibly the Queensland aspect here. But when you mentioned the Dreamworld mm. tragedy, and I think particularly, and look, it affected everybody in Australia, no doubt about it. But I think particularly for Queensland people who go there, you know, generally quite regularly, it's a big part of their lives. My first reaction too was okay, well that's it, we're not going to yeah any park again and now you you juxtapose that with jumping in the car yeah. with your
1: two kids. Well that's you know that was one of the things I wanted to look at is why do we react like we do to the kind of stories we see on the news. So say for example with the Dreamworld roller coaster accident I got in the that day that it happened I was picking up my kids from daycare they got in the car with me and I thought that is I, I would I would not survive that. I'm never taking my kids on a roller coaster like that again as they're in the car with me. Now, the statistics are my children are at far graver risk of death driving in the car with me than they are of any form of accident being on an amusement park ride. That's just a straight statistical truth. So then I went away and looked at well, then why do we make decisions based on stuff that's not sort of real? And the, the thing is, you, you, th- you think it's a unique way of thinking, you think it's your own unique crazy way of thinking, but what I discovered is there's an entire branch of mathematics based on this same uh, question, which is, it's called minimax regret, whereas we make, we make decisions based on fear of the consequences, not on the actual probability. So it's why, for example... We insure our house because we fear, well, I'm prepared to take a small guaranteed loss every year of 2000 bucks on my house and contents insurance than I am to risk the catastrophic loss of my entire house, even though you know I don't know anyone who's lost their entire house I have not previously lost my whole house the probability of that happening to me is low but it, it feels like a risk I can avoid and same with the dream world thing i you're you calculating oh well that's a risk I can avoid I can make myself safe if I avoid that risk the car you think oh that would be too inconvenient I don't want to not drive my car so we're all making these decisions all the time that are not rational they're based on sort of gut and they're based on fear of consequences and also this misguided view that we can do things that make ourselves safe whereas we can't because how do we know nance that right now the roof of this room isn't going to cave in that a truck's not going to drive through the back Thing of the ABC and takes both out that I'm not going to have a heart attack. Like, you can't make yourself safe, but we like to live in this imaginary world that we can.
0: And all these people that you spoke to, like the of who uh, was at the Lint Cafe, Siege, Lisa, like, and how they don't have any sense of that, you know, they were chosen by God or something
1: special to no, have so avoided
0: that either. No, and yeah. that's
1: the thing that, that's the reality of it is that there's no, it's just bad luck it was just bad luck for those people that they were in the link cafe they didn't do anything that meant that they deserved to be there Stuart Diver didn't do anything that meant that he deserved to be in Threadbow and nor did he do anything that meant that he deserved to be the sole survivor he wasn't any more worthy of surviving than anybody else these things are all completely random but we all get you know those kind of stories on the news ratings always go up when those stories are on because people are fascinated by this intersection of chance and destiny and fate and so forth.
0: Well, as you say um, in the book as well, there's astrology and all sorts of ways that we've tried to rationalise all this and keep it within our control. But I loved that you kind of pulled back the fourth wall to I suppose put in theatrical terms really and to look at really what we are trying to do here and that we're all it's something that unites all of us.
1: Yeah exactly Mm. and that's I think the power of journalism is that we're telling stories that either give you an insight into somebody's experience that is not your experience or giving an insight into an experience which is universal and it's everybody's experience and it helps you understand the world has that
0: informed your journalism now Do you feel like i mean after 25 years doing this wonderful job traveling the world is that where the learning comes, that empathy
1: that you yeah, speak of as well? I, th- I think it is. Um, it, it is amazing how you can still just keep learning. And I did feel through writing this book and talking to these people that it has changed the way I do journalism. Like, for example, when I was learning to be a journalist, we were always told, never show anyone that you're interviewing the finished product because they'll, they might try to wind it back or they might not like what they see written down. And your obligation is to the audience. You know, you have an obligation to the people you interview, but your primary obligation is to tell the truth truth to the audience now I with say a book like any ordinary day everyone in it I showed their part of the book before I published it because and in some cases there was one person who did want to wind a few comments back and I allowed them to because it is their story and it's their story on the record and all of these people had been severely traumatized and had incredible pain in their lives and I didn't want to add to that pain by then putting on the record something that they didn't really want to have on the record so with people in the case of the one person who wanted to wind things back there are a couple of other things that they looked at wanted to change and I explained why I thought it was important that that should be in and why I was using it and what I was hoping to illustrate and then they were happy for that to be in so I felt like it was a bit of a, a negotiation so you know but 20 years ago I would have thought, well, you've said that on tape and it was on the record, you knew it was on the record, so that's what we're going with. Whereas now I feel like I'm not quite so black and white on that. I just wonder
0: if we've really, if you've touched on something here, Lee, about the future of journalism in some ways, because to me you've, and the way you've written the book as well, you've shown the thought process that journalists use and quite often that is removed from the process that's edited out or mm. it's made into a package for TV or radio or whatever. Do we need to almost show more of these decisions that are being made? Would people then empathise more with journalists and and respect more the job that we're trying to do instead of putting us at the lower end of the
1: heap. Yeah, possibly people would understand more. Like I'm sometimes surprised at things people ask me, like people ask me, do you write your own questions? And I think, yes, and I'm stunned (laughs) that they think that that I wouldn't write my own questions or that they don't realise that in the course of an interview, like, yes, I go in there, say I'm talking about 7.30 now, yes, I go in there with some written down questions, but mostly I'm listening to what the other person says and reacting to what they say and then... Coming up with questions spontaneously, so I think sometimes yeah people don't understand. Or you know I might ask a question on seven thirty of a politician that comes from a particular point of view because what I'm trying to do is give that person the opportunity to say rebut the arguments that are made against them because I think that's where you can persuade people of the merits of your case. So if I just bowl Dorothy Dixes and allow somebody tell tell me about your policy that's going to be boring because you're not going to persuade anybody. Whereas if I say, isn't your policy negligent because of blah, 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 it gives them the opportunity to say, well, no, it's not and this is why. And that's a much more, I think, persuasive and engaging way to to do it. But sometimes people will get You know, I'll get social media feedback that people will say, oh, how dare you ask in that question, blah, blah, blah. And I'll think, well, how did you think that they were going to get to make their point if I didn't ask that question? So I do wonder if we're going to move more into a period where we explain more about what we do. And
0: revealing that fallibility, Lee, I commend you to when we were talking about, your Walkley Noms and how you talk about Hurricane Katrina. That sounded like a horrendous experience for you, of course. And all journos who do these natural disasters come back changed always but for you to actually reveal on reflection the difficulties you have with the coverage that you made.
1: Yeah and it's you know I write in the book about how the pressures of being there in the disaster zone and I was reporting for Radio Current Affairs at the time so you're trying to find three stories a day trying to keep kicking the story forward it's relentless and finding a woman who I could interview who was quite traumatized she had her grandkids with her and just thinking i got to get like two and a half three minutes out of this to make it work for AM and just question after question after question and her grandson who was 11 said to me at one point that's enough and I just pretended I hadn't heard him and asked one more question and then he said more loudly that's enough and then I stopped and then you know in hindsight you think oh my god an 11 year old had to tell me that enough was enough like that's just shameful but at the time, you are thinking about... Uh, you're, you're balancing that person's well-being against your deadline, the fact you're going to get your bum kicked if you don't come back with the story, the fact that you've almost got enough, you're nearly over the line, that it's going to have an impact beyond where the story's being told and perhaps be helpful. So you tell yourself all these things that sort of justify the behaviour and I think every journalist, unless they're lying, would have examples like I just gave where you've been trying to talk somebody over the line to doing an interview, persuading them to go on the record and has it always been 100% in that person's best interests? I don't know, but I reckon a lot of journos would have a lot of stories to tell like that.
0: I uh, wonder, once you've been a foreign correspondent, what is, does that inform your work further down the track always? I just wonder, what is the high once you've done
1: uh, an amazing job like that? Um, I... That was definitely a high for me. I was in Washington from late 2001 just after 9-11 until the end of 2005, so it was an amazing period. Mm-hmm. I felt like I learnt a tonne to just Frankly, being immersed in American media because it was the best media you know in the world—New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker—I felt like I learned a lot just by consuming that media. And also, the other Australian journals who were there at the time were some of the best journalists in the country. So Peter Harcher, Marion Wilkinson, Roy Eccleston, um, Lisa Miller at the ABC, Jill Colgan, John Shovelin and I felt. I learned a lot by working with them as well and just seeing all of the different ways people have in going about their journalism so I did definitely learn lessons there that I then brought back here. But as I say, you're learning all the time. I mean, I learnt stuff when I was hosting Late Line. I learned stuff all the time hosting 7.30. Like, I feel like I'm just constantly learning.
0: Was being a journalist, being a foreign correspondent, something you'd wanted to do from when you were quite young?
1: Yeah, and I had, I definitely had wanted to be the Washington correspondent since I sort of left journalism school, basically, because it just, America to me is such an interesting story. It's always fascinating. And yeah, I just had always had the goal of doing that. And So then when I came back from that, I was only 32 so I then had to think right well now what am I going to do and so that was quite a sort of weird like oh my god it's now I've done that thing so now what's going to be the next thing and then luckily things just sort of happened and and I've ended up where I am but yeah I did I always enjoyed reading and writing and so journalism seemed like a job that you can in, indulge those passions,
0: and I wonder too uh, how much your Queensland identity has come through at times. Like I can't this is an, an interesting time for us Queenslanders. 30th anniversary of Fitzgerald Inquiry yeah. and things like that. How much of
1: that time, that Joe time, did that
0: play with you as you were growing up?
1: Not. Not so much that because I wasn't very politically aware Mm. as a kid. It was just sort of background noise. Mm. We weren't a family that particularly consumed the news all the time. But more so I think just the sort of attitude of Queenslanders and what I tend to find, I know I'm generalising, but I do think Queenslanders have a very high bullshit radar (laughs) and low tolerance for it. And I think that that, I would like to think, that comes across in my interviewing and the way that I relate to people and the way that I, I think I'm fairly plain spoken and not even though I am interested in intellectual things, I don't think that I come across as like a (laughs) wanker. I think I talk like a normal sort of Queensland person, and so often when I'm asking a question, I'll feel like I want to cut through bullshit, and I think that's a very Queensland thing.
0: It reminds me when I was in Portugal doing newsreading, and my friends would say to me, "Who you been talking to, the Queen or something?" Because I had to soften up my accent <laughs> it.
1: Sometimes uh, I find it hard <laughs> in an interview to not go, "Mate, uh... <laughs> real, yeah, just say that." <laughs> Mate, get your hand off it in that sort of very (laughs) Queensland way.
0: And uh, I can't help but think too, here we are at... In Ultimo, where only a few months ago the AFP came yeah. through to raid a couple of the journalists here and find out information, were you here at the time?
1: What I mean, are your reflections? Yeah, on that? I was. I my reflections. Really? on it with John John Lyons' tweets. Lyon um, tweeting. <laughs> Lyons tweeting. Lyons mm-hmm. tweeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was quite. It was. I mean, I wasn't sort of involved in the you know mm-hmm. any of the action. or oh, there's my executive producer just trying to call me now. Of course. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Everyone was just sort of like a bit rattled like oh my god we're being raided so yeah it was quite quite exciting really do you think are you worried about the implications for that on press freedom have you seen that even in your role i think we're mistaken if we think that this is a recent thing like i mean mm. i remember straight after nine eleven, there was a lot of reporting about the curtailment of civil liberties in exchange for enhanced powers for security agencies in the war on terror and there was a lot of controversy at the time about things like control orders and people being able to be detained for longer periods of time without charge and so forth and there was a lot of debate around it and then over time I think we've come to accept the normalization of information being kept more and more secret, security agencies being given more and more powers, a lack of transparency around that. And I feel also like when I was in the United States, they had much more of a culture of the public's right to know than what we have here. And I Australians think Australians
0: take that for granted a bit, do yeah, you Yeah,
1: massively, massively. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has gotten worse in the past, you know, 19 years, 18 years since 9-11. And I think that people that think oh, it's the coalition government, bullshit, it's been across governments of both stripes, this practice, and a lot of it's passed in a bipartisan way. And I think, you know, so much of what happens in this country, I had more access to Guantanamo Bay than I've ever had to say Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney. That that is unbelievable to me that we have more security around asylum seekers than the US had around the worst of the worst at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, that's that's unbelievable, but that's the culture of it. Now, do you need to ring your EP? Or no, anything? I'll, or no? Um, Are I'll you just sure? text him. Hang on, um, <laughs> this is just a little insight into the live. It of... is live. Okay, I'm just going to say, okay, hang on, 15 minutes. <laughs> it is, thank you. That would be... <laughs>
0: but it did make me think, and I hope I've opened to the right point here in your book. And I wonder how much of this is about our trying to control random events. I mean, all these terrorism events have been terrible. Of course, and uh, the link Café siege affected everybody. But is Australia has the most anti-terrorism laws in the world and has that really made that tipping point? Is it really starting to impact on how journalists, how the media can keep those in power to account,
1: essentially? Well, it is because you can't find out information, so you don't know what's going on. So, you know, even, say, the Pell case where there was the suppression on the identity for a long period of time, I mean... I think a lot of Australians were puzzled by that when it came out, thinking, well, ha- why didn't we deserve to know about that? I mean, I just, my mind boggles at how much stuff must go on that we must have absolutely no idea about. I mean, just. I don't know. So, yeah, it does definitely make our jobs harder all the time. What, what what really needs to be done, do you think? We've
0: got an inquiry going on at the moment. Um, well, have you noticed maybe whistleblowers are less eager to come forward? What impacts is this happening?
1: Well, I think in the national security space, yes, because, you know, you can be heavily prosecuted. I think what needs to happen partly is for things to change, the public needs to be on board and to think that, they want journalists to be able to have more access to information and they want more access to information themselves. I think journalists would have a stronger case for making that argument if we did a better job and if we weren't reporting from our echo chambers and we weren't taking sides and barracking for one side or the other and being sloppy or inaccurate or taking advantage of people or all of the flaws that are inherent in journalism. I think, and I probably would say this because I'm sort of old school, I think we need to reaffirm our commitment to things like objectivity and integrity and fairness and accuracy and all of those old basic tenets of journalism which I do worry are getting out of vogue but I think that's the way to maintain public trust.
0: What about balance? I feel like balance is a big debating point at the moment too particularly with things like climate change and well, balance.
1: I think balance is I mean there's fact so climate change like firstly just report the fact the fact is that It is overwhelmingly accepted that human activity causes climate change. That is the actual fact. So once you go from there, there doesn't need to be balance in that discussion because you don't say we don't give equal time to anti-vaxxers and so forth. That is not a question of balance. That is a question of fact. Once you've accepted that fact, though, where balance is required is looking at the pol- policy responses and the way to respond to the fact of the existence of climate change. So you have a full range of things there from people who say, well, we need to stop coal mining and coal exports and we need to go to a zero emissions reduction policy to the other end where people say, well, Australia only responsible for 1.3 percent of global emissions. Therefore, we shouldn't do anything because it doesn't you know, make a difference. That's one. In, that, that's both end of the spectrums. Somewhere along that a squillion other policy responses that you can have. That's the space where you want balance, where you want multiple voices to be heard about what is the best way forward. And that's where, for somebody like me, you want to be prosecuting people who come up to say, say, for example, the people to say, let's stop coal exports. You want to quiz them on, well, what's that going to do to the economy? What's that going to do to the jobs? For people who say, well, we should do nothing, well, what's that going to do to our moral leadership? We had a small contribution to the Iraq war. It didn't mean we didn't do it why did we do that but we wouldn't do it on climate change so you want to be able to prosecute both ends in the interests of giving viewers of the show the best possible information so they can think about what they think is the right thing to do so i think with balance it's not a case some some issues there is not a balance because you can simply go back to the fact even just to refer back to mention guantanamo bay before mm, my first mm. book detainee 002 that was an issue that became very polarized because people either thought oh well david hicks is an evil terrorist and who cares if he rots in guantanamo or people going oh he's a pawn and." the, you know, Howard government's sucking up to the Bush administration and, you know, he should be freed and he's blameless and blah, blah, blah. The truth of that story was, you know, somewhere in the middle of that. But regardless of what you thought of the morality of Guantanamo Bay and what they were doing there, it was set up because the Bush administration said, firstly, this will keep the world safer from terrorism. And secondly, this is the only way to bring terrorists to justice because regular courts can't cope with this new environment. We have to have this special justice system that we're going to set up just evaluating on a factual basis whether the outcomes of guantanamo bay met the stated objectives they just did not the world was less safer from terrorism five years later and nobody had been brought to trial the only successful trials had been in mainland courts so therefore you don't even need to look at it on a moral question on a straight pragmatic basis that did not work as a policy, and so I think sometimes you can sort of strip things back to try to get them out of that very polarized emotive political space, and just look at does this work, and then you know go from there.
0: I think that's the last time I remember seeing you. Lee was uh, in Adelaide with David Hicks's van yes, driving. It in. would have
1: been it now many, there. many, many years. It ago. is, <laughs> but it's
0: interesting to reflect on that. There's part of me that. Doesn't want to ask this, but I feel I have to. What about for women in the media, dare I say, Lee? I just feel like for high profile uh, journalists like yourself, you just, whether you want to or not, you're in the middle of a big social media debate.
1: Yeah, it's um that it's just so tiring and tedious and there's no way around it. But, but I also accept that's just part of the job. And so that's fine. I tend to not immerse a lot in that world of everyone having an opinion about, me because I sort of remember you know when I was growing up sort of being taught the view about well it's none of your business what people think about you um so and I don't want it getting in my head and I think you can't in the same way that I don't put a lot of stock in people going oh you're awesome you're brilliant blah blah I think you also need to put no stock in people telling you you're shit you're hopeless you're useless because you know it's all equally as worthless if you know what I mean Mm. so I try to not immerse in that I do think that we're living in a sort of I don't know world where there can be incredible bullying and sort of the I guess the relentlessness of social media which people can find very impactful and so I often try to say to people just if you can like just try to not engage with it because it really does get in your headspace so that's what I often will say to friends or colleagues who are finding it hard or say you just need to after the show not look at it you just need to go home and switch off from it.
0: Has the treatment of women improved you think in the wake of Me Too or is there still a lot of
1: Mansplaining I, and. Yeah, I was thinking about it this morning, thinking... I mean, I get plenty of mansplaining and I get plenty of sort of sexualized comments. But I was thinking this morning about how lucky I've been myself in my career with the male bosses I've had, who have all been really decent blokes, not, not a sleaze bag among them, and also have been the kind of bosses that I think female workers need, which is the kind of bosses who say, OK, I know you don't have the experience on paper. I think you can do this here's this opportunity, now don't fuck it up. And so that's been actually, I'm so grateful that I've had bosses like that who've always sort of stretched me beyond my capabilities and let me have a go and backed me in to do that. And so that's been, you know, like Justin Stevens who tried to ring before 7.30 EP, he's so supportive and so in my corner that it just gives me the confidence to go out there every night on live TV and sort of walk that. Tight because I feel like I'm so comprehensively backed. And so that's been, I mean, that's amazing. Like I'm so grateful to have somebody like that to work with every day. And I've been incredibly lucky that that's mostly what I've had in my career. So I haven't really had those kind of bad me too experiences. And in fact, even the ones that come to mind, when I've had to really sort of rack my brains to think of it, like I remember once he was a bit of a handsy cameraman and he'd always take his time clipping your lapel mark onto you, that sort of vibe. <laughs> and I remember once I used to just sort of roll my eyes and not say anything but one day I was looking away when he did it so it sort of caught me by surprise when he sort of put his hand on me and um, I just sort of turned and like barked in his face because I didn't have a second to sort of think, you oh, know, here we go and just barked, do you mind? And then he never did it again and I'd sort of just forgotten about it because it felt to me like, oh, well, he did that I humiliated him and barked at him and then it didn't happen again. And so it didn't really stick in my mind as mm. any level of harassment. But I think women all – we all evaluate these things differently, don't we? And so for other people that might have been, you know, a traumatic thing that they always go – sort of harassed by cameramen.
0: Lee, thank you so much for giving us your reflections on the Juno project. I really appreciate it. I wonder if we can just finish on how you how your antenna goes off for a story now and reflection with that. I mean, does social media come into it? Is it your forensic note-taking, <laughs> finding, finding the holes in those
1: email trails or is it a, a mix of all of those things? It's a mix of all of those things. But I think now I'm more conscious of noticing what I'm thinking and noticing what catches my interest because that's often the source I think of of stories where or you hear somebody say something in the playground or at the shop or whatever or at a dinner and you think oh that's interesting that they said that maybe that's a story but you sort of have to notice if you know what I mean you have to like actually pay attention to your thought processes that something's sort of stuck in your head and I think I've gotten better at observing like that and paying attention like that and I think that's often the source of where you see stories come out of but it is it's a funny question because I think once you've done it a long time it's like someone explaining to you asking you to explain how do you brush your teeth <laughs> because it's so instinctive like the, that sense that oh, that's a story that's the question to ask because you've done it for a long time it's very very hard to break down what it actually is that you do.
0: And it fascinates me with a, a few 730 report stories I've noticed, particularly I think the horse racing one. It fascinates me that these stories have been going on for years. Years. But it takes a journo, a team to comprehensively look at that, yeah. pull it all together and actually show the wrong. And that that seems a very rich area of stories.
1: Well to me and as I well. also like the stories I like are the ones that I think show the reality of most people's or of a lot of people's daily lives that are invisible. So, for example, this week we had a story about the NDIS and what it's like to be on the NDIS and be doing the paperwork and stuff. And so we just followed two families through getting on the phone, doing the paperwork and how you burn through carers if your kid's very difficult and so forth. And that is reality for a lot of people. Or The other stories I like are ones about health insurance and the gap that you have. You think you've got private health insurance, you're going to be covered. You're not. You pay a goddamn fortune. That's the reality of people's experience. And I think there's a lot of power in those quiet everyday stories if you know what i mean because everyone's individual story i think is interesting once you dig into it and there's a certain relatability in that so i love those kind of stories where you sort of like all right let's go follow somebody with a kid who's got special needs or let's go follow somebody on this particular path because it does show i think insight into what daily life is like thank you so much lee for joining us on the
0: journal project thank you for (laughs) having (laughs) me That was three-time Walkley Award winner and presenter of 7.30, Lee Sales, speaking with me at ABC headquarters in Ultimo for The Journo Project. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.